Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How does your view or interaction with money affect your relationships? How does your spouse or partner view money? Have you ever been challenged getting on the same page with money? Ed Combs, a firefighter turned financial advisor turned marriage and financial therapist, knows a lot about walking into high-intensity situations, navigating the flames, and walking everyone out safely. These proverbial fires are no stranger between spouses and their financial lives. Ed has become a thought leader in financial therapy, the professional field that blends personal finance and counseling psychology to effective, positive lasting change for families. Understanding our relationships around money becomes more complex when interwoven with our closest relationships, such as our partner, spouse, or kids. Ed's work focuses on identifying the underlying issues causing marital money stress by helping to identify your attachment styles. Your attachment styles impact all areas of your life, your relationships, finances, work life, and parenting. There are four adult attachment styles that Ed and I discussed, which have a direct impact on the quality of your interpersonal relationships. Anxious, avoidant, disorganized, and secure. Ed and I also discussed the impact parents can have on developing our own kids' views and emotions towards money, which could stick with them throughout their adult lives. Please enjoy my conversation with Ed Combs. So, Ed Combs, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Paul, thanks so much for having me. And I'm so excited to be here talking about uh, couples and money. Yeah. I mean, your your background is is uh, uber uh, exciting and, and relevant to me because you were a financial advisor in your own right uh, before you became a licensed therapist. And full disclosure, I didn't know who you were until probably about, I don't know, and look at the calendar, maybe four or five weeks ago when you were on the Michael Kitz's podcast that I listen to every week. And we're going to get into this example that we were just talking about off air, but you gave this example of a husband and wife spending working dilemma. And I'm like, I got to call Ed and, and get him on my show because <laughs> this is exactly what my wife, Teresa, and I deal with quite often. And a lot of families that I work with uh, deal with. So, um, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the on the show and talk about um, this really important topic that affects you know all of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and I'm glad to be here, and this is a big part of my mission now is to get beyond my therapy walls and help bring the knowledge that I've learned in the counseling world back into the planning community because. Right. As planners, we learn a lot about how money works from cash flow and spending to investments and taxes and insurance and estate planning and all super important stuff. But how many, Paul, how many classes in graduate school counseling did you get or psychology? I didn't get any, 
But to your point, that's that's the point I make to a lot of people where they where they have this stereotype of I think of what advisors are yeah. today. It's just like numbers and, and dollars and cents. But as I go into you know my the depth of what I do, I tell people and they and they I think they eventually wow. get it that oh you are more psychologist behavioral coach than you are numbers guy. Right. Because what happens in the plan, financial planning process, you know, so well, you've done with every client is clients come in and they have their financial life and you get it all pulled together and you look at it and you're like, oh, they need to make some changes. Right. Like, how many people have come to you and be like, you know, I've looked at all your financial information. You guys are doing great. Um, just keep on going. Go ahead and pay me the fee and just keep on going what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, most of the time people call one of us or an advisor because something something happens in their life, some tipping point, some yeah. major life transition or minor life transitions, which I'm sure yeah. we're going to get into this is that I think yeah. are completely underrated. I think people don't realize the number and magnitude of the life transitions they go through, whether it's having kids, getting married, getting divorced, death, you know, job change, all of those things, they happen more frequently and often than than people give credit to. And and predictably, right? And that's yeah. part of the, I think most of us individually live our life as if life is quasi random. And when you work in the planning field or the therapy world, you start to realize there's very predictable patterns and stages of life that people go through. And look, I don't think anybody listening to the show doesn't realize like, okay, yeah, I go from being 20 something to probably getting married to then having kids. Maybe I have a kid before I get married and then I get married, but more or less they come together. And then, you know, my career builds and then maybe I transition my career and then my parents get a little older and then I get older and then I've got to think about taking care of them, right? Like, okay, if you stop and think about it, yeah, there's a life cycle, right? And this is, you know, therapists study this stuff and figure out like, what are those age ranges that these different things are happening and what's happening psychologically? So anyhow, I'll stop. So no, th- no, this far is, off. no, this is good because you're hitting on all the points that that I'm hoping that we're going to talk about. So let's let's start with your background. And as kind of, I've already teed this up is that you used to be a financial advisor yourself and then you transitioned and talking about life transitions you transitioned into the therapy world. Talk to us about your background and what that transition was like. Well, there was a bigger transition before that. So I was actually a professional firefighter first and came straight out of high school, went into professional firefighting in 2001, July, two months before 9-11. And you know, that sets the stage for a young man's brain about how the world is uh, operates. And I spent that next five years working as a firefighter and listening to the guys complain about two things. Money and their wives. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yes, yes. And not always in that order. But uh, yes, I mean, you know, and, and to their credit, right? They're humans just like the rest of us. But what makes the fire service unique is we're like a family. And we spend right. 24 on, 70, uh, 48 off. And and the guys get personal, like different than in the corporate culture where, you know, that's stymied a little bit. So you really saw, I saw firsthand both guys that were Guys, and I say guys not to be gender discriminatory, but there was two females amongst 100 firefighters. So when I'm saying guys, it literally was guys. Um, and I saw the guys that were doing good and making financial progress in their careers. And I saw the guys that were struggling and figuring that, trying to figure it out and couldn't get it together. And even as I'm saying this, one of those big differentiators, the guys that had it going together were meeting with this advisor guy that I didn't really understand what he was doing, but he came by and suspenders and fancy slacks and then drove a Lexus. <laughs> and they're like, Ed, just pay attention to what he tells you to do and do what he says. 
and you'll be taken care of. And, you know, firefighters, we have a great pension. So I was investing above and beyond that as were these other guys. And yeah, I think that was that early start that like financial advice matters and makes a difference. But, you know, I wanted to get into something else. I met my wife who was finishing dental school and um, I thought, well, man, what am I going to do? I earned my undergrad in business because I thought maybe I'll be a fire chief. Well, no. <laughs> uh, but I go to work at Vanguard Mutual Funds, get my MBA, CFP, and know how finances work at the corporate level, at the personal level, backwards and forwards. But when I go to talk to my wife about what we should do, that's <laughs> another story. Does she say, wow, Ed, you are so brilliant. I'm really glad you came up with that plan. No. And I, I love my wife. Please, honey, if you hear this one, you know this. I've told this story a million times on the podcast, podcast but it, she has her own experience with money and her own psychological background with money, as do I, that we're coloring what, what we should do and how much we should allocate in one direction or another. And this was true with clients and other parts of my family. And so that really opened up discussions like, well, how do I better understand people? And I knew just enough to know that counselors understood people. And that's about as deep as it went. And then I went back to school to become a therapist thinking, well, I'll just learn how people work and then I'll really be good at this money thing. Now the great irony is when you go through becoming a therapist, they don't talk about money at all. They actually would rather not talk about it which poses a problem in applying counseling psychology to helping people with money. If no one's saying like, Oh, here's how you do this counseling thing with money. So uh, there's this wonderful field now that I'm a part of, which is called the financial therapy association, which is mental health professionals and financial planners are saying, how do we take financial planning process and counseling process and blend them together so that people can really be fully engaged in their financial life. So you know that's uh, it's funny you brought that up about your wife because I I I'd swear sometimes Teresa has this love hate relationship with what I do and like being married to a a financial advisor is not always what it's cracked up to be. It's 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 almost as bad as being married to a therapist. <laughs> yes, I could see why, but but I think I think it goes back to the fact that and you brought this up is that we all whether we're married or single or partners. I don't think it matters. We all come from different backgrounds of what money meant to us. Like I know like growing up, you know, middle class, lower middle uh-huh. class, money was always tight. And uh-huh. you know, working with families, you know, from partners or spouses, when they come from different angles where one came from like say a lower income, another one came from an upper income, that can create a lot of tension. And it's managing those almost landmines, if you will, between the two where, you know, I do some of my best work because if, if you can't get them on or close to being on the same page or not necessarily on the p- same page, Ed, maybe you'll agree with this or not, it's just getting them to acknowledge their other feelings. But then it c- gets back to your therapy point where like, okay, you have to get them to get their feelings on the table. Yes. All of that. I'm, I'm definitely tracking with you in, in agreement. And I think one of the one of the most more helpful lenses is when we start to think about our social class backgrounds as a form of culture, right? And every culture has a system of belief and understanding and language and way of doing things that makes sense to that culture. But if you come as an outsider to that culture, it's hard to get the the nuances of why would you coupon? 
if you come from a mass affluent, you know, doctor family, like, but why are you coupon? Like, I don't get that. Wait, but why are you sending your kids to private school? You know, and so we could list off all these things, right? And some of them are stereotypical, but social class is culture. And so when we can help people reframe, reframe their background as you're visiting another person's culture and each person's culture is right to them, it starts to soften and change the way we understand what's going on. Because oftentimes couples default into a, I'm right, you're wrong position. And that obviously creates distance and blocks intimacy. So one of the things that, um, in full disclosure, it's on my desk to read is your book. Um, Great. Why why don't you walk us through your book and what what are the the maybe two or three critical aspects of what you would want the reader to walk away with? And and one of the topics you know I, I want to come back to is this these four attachment styles that you talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called The Healthy Love and Money Way, How the Four Attachment Styles Impact Your Financial Well-Being. That's a mouthful. So The Healthy Love and Money Way, if you search that on Amazon, that that'll get you there. We'll put but, we'll put a show or a link to that in our show notes, so. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, and what's so funny is I feel most proud of the attachment psychology that I've interwoven into the book. Like I feel like, man, that's huge. This is so cool. It's going to help so many people. I haven't had a whole, I've had a few people say like, oh, that's cool. If they know attachment there, like that's cool. You do that. But I think what people really first get from the book is like, this guy is super vulnerable in this book and he's real about his own story and the joys and, and successes, but also some of the very painful things around money that have happened in my life and other painful things that have happened in my life that then impact it. And so uh, that's all in the book is really more of my story. And then trying to show how that sets the stage for why I relate to money the way I do and why I've approached my wife the way I do. So, but on, I'm also a fan of science and psycho- psychological science, especially. And within psychology, there's this whole field of study called attachment theory. It's been around for about eight decades. And really what, you know, of course, psychologists want to understand through this lens is how do humans form intimate relationships? Where does this come from? What, what sets the stage for them? And so we know from inf- lots of years of infant research about how important the, the bonding experience be- from baby to par- to caregiver. And I'm intentionally saying caregiver because it used to be mother, but we, the research is very clear. It's about primary caregivers, having dad or mom safely there meeting the needs of the baby. And when that doesn't happen, the neonatal develop- brain development gets interrupted. Some of the neural pathways that you need for empathy get interrupted. In extreme cases, when babies are neglected and not touched enough, they can die, right? So that's very extreme, but that shows you the extent. And this was found through Romanian orphanages. So we, we know from primate studies and human studies that human bondedness is very important. Look, we just went through COVID <laughs> and what happened to us when we couldn't be social anymore. Right. Yeah, exactly. We, we freaked out. Like, uh, except for those people that wear those really nice t-shirts that say I'm part of the anti-social social club. <laughs> I love you. Um, let's talk about your attachment style as avoidant. And I'll use that as my tee up. <laughs> so the researchers have looked at relational patterns and how do people feel in a relationship? How do they feel about themselves? How do they feel about the other person and their availability to be there for them relationally? And they've come up with four broad categories. They're secure, anxious, avoidant, 
and disorganized. And so, of course, everyone was like, well, I want to be secure. I mean, that's that's got to be the best, right? <laughs> well, it is from a research and psychological perspective, the healthiest option. But the, the trick is we don't choose our attachment style. It's developed within us through our early childhood caregiving. The good news is it can grow and change over time, especially if we're able to get into healthier relationships. So a securely attached individual generally has a positive view of themselves and a positive view of others, especially in, in the intimate relationship. So you can imagine if you're making money decisions with your partner and you're securely attached and your partner's securely attached, you're more likely to give your partner the benefit of the doubt. And if they misstep and miscue on how much to spend or save, or they say something that just doesn't land right, they can acknowledge it. Wow, I'm sorry. I can see that that hurt your feelings or, you know, I'm sorry that that didn't land well. And the other person can say, okay, yeah, yeah, it did hurt. And I see that you're being genuine and you care about me and okay, I forgive you. And on we go. Simple, but that's, you know, secure. If you're anxiously attached in general, you have a lower view of yourself and a more positive view of other people. These are anxiously attached are also would be known as people pleasers. Um, and they often are worried about making relationships work. They work double time, triple time to try to make sure the relationship is uh, working well. They never really feel like somebody understands them. And they feel like their primary job is to understand other people more often than not and to keep them engaged in the relationship. Avoidance on the other side often have a positive view of themselves and a lower view of others. What they learned in their relational experiences, relationships are not very nurturing or caregiving. So it's better to keep relationships at an arm's length distance to try to kind of shut down emotion as much as possible and be more intellectual because that's safer to be in my thoughts because thoughts don't hurt as much as feelings do. Although thoughts, every thought has a feeling associated with it, but you know, that's the, yeah. I mean, just listening, you go through this. I'm not sure if you're, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Gottman's work. Um, oh, yeah. and time. I'm just thinking right now and the, the seven, uh, horsemen of the apocalypse uh, or what? Yeah. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, uh-huh. Oh my God, I can see where you're going down this road. And I've, I've had this conversation with Teresa before. So. I know she's going to listen to this one. She's going to be like, Paul, <laughs> oh, uh, we need to focus on this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Paul, what Paul's rec- uh, acknowledging is Dr. John Gottman is a mar- one of many great marriage researchers, and he's tried to do some mathematical models to predict which couples are most likely to divorce. And it's called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there are four distinct patterns that couples get into relating to each other. One of the big ones is contempt. Mm-hmm. And if contempt is on the table, it's a high, high predictor that your relationship is going to end financially. Think about how often people, partners feel contempt or resentment for what their partner's doing around money. This is why money gets so toxic in relationships. And so, you. but what I would argue is beneath that contempt is your attachment system where you're in relational distress and you don't either know how to ask for the support you need or provide the support that's needed. Do you even realize like you're in distress? That seems like uh, that seems like sometimes it would, not. You wouldn't be it'd be hard to like self-recognize that maybe. Well, and that's part of the challenge oftentimes with people that have so they the the um anxious, avoidant, and disorganized are insecure attachment patterns, and the level of self-awareness and self-appraisal is much lower, or accurate self-appraisal is much lower than the securely attached, right? So because attachment is all about the quality of interpersonal relationship and acceptance for both 
positive experience as well as challenging experience. And so if you're insecurely attached, you may not even recognize how much distress you're in or how much distress your partner is in. Add to that that some number of them, if we look through a slightly different lens, um, people know, have probably heard the words conflict avoidant versus conflict, excuse me, pursuing. Conflict avoidant, it's really hard to know when you're upset with someone because they don't show any signs of distress. They've learned to shut that down. And that's actually much more dangerous in a relationship is if you're not showing that you're upset, your partner has no opportunity to correct. Because you're just shutting them off altogether. They don't know. They don't like know. If you, I'm not pissed. Paul, I'm not pissed. I'm not upset with you. Meanwhile, like, I can't believe you have that book behind you. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally making this up. All the books on his bookshelf look fantastic. And I like them. But right. That's Yours will that, be there like, soon enough. Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. That's why I'm actually really pissed, Paul. I need to tell you, like, you you didn't read my book before this podcast interview. And it's not on your show. No. I, obviously, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. No. Just kidding. Now we've gotten really playful. This, which is fun, right? This is, like, this is serious stuff that we're talking about. But we can... Like if we can bring a little levity to looking at this is our attachment system is integral to us being humans. It's part of what helps us do the social thing. And the good news is when we get into healthier relationships, we start to improve our attachment system, right? And so it's a whole psychological and physiological system that's designed to help us maintain and make and recover relationships when they don't go well. So when parents start to learn about the attachment system, they start to freak out because they're like, oh God. I've ruined my kids. I know it. I've totally ruined them. Uh, probably not. I mean, maybe a few, but we also know from attachment research that we don't have to have perfect relationships. This is the great news, right? It's actually a, a risk factor if you're striving for a perfect relationship. That that's a sign of insecurity in relationship. If things have to be perfect or you're striving for that, because as humans, we're not perfect and we're going to misstep. And so secure relationships allow for missteps. And some of the research would say that we actually probably miscue more than we cue correctly. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know your attachment style, Paul, but we actually, for this interview, like I stood you up unintentionally. <laughs> Right, and we weren't going to talk about that, Ed, but that's okay. I'm bringing I'm not it up. Pissed. I'm not I'm pissed. Not. And we're in a secure enough relationship. We're using the best part of our attachment systems to show up and just be honest and candid. But right, like I felt genuinely bad about it. I sent you the email and said, "Yeah, oh my god, I just looked at this two hours later. I'm so sorry. You know, can we do another?" And you responded back with with kindness, and it was like, "I get it. That's all right. No problem. Yeah, let's do this on." Right. And so I think that's is, the interrupt, interrupt for a second yeah. is I think that's the benefit of being a father of, I, I think it just, I think that's just a benefit of being a father. But in my situation, having triplets plus one is that I was having this conversation, I think with another podcast guest uh, last week was that I think, oh yeah, it was with, with, uh, with the Michigan state university um, uh, financial planning um uh, group is that I, I made the comment that I thought that being a father has helped make me a better financial advisor because of the empathy. Now, again, I said this before, I don't know if Teresa will agree with that, but I, I think that that's, that's really shown through with the families that I work with, because that's some of the feedback that I get is that we want to work with you, Paul, because we understand, you know, where we're coming from. You've been in our shoes before 
and can relate and understand and and come with it from a sense of empathy and not saying, well, you should be saving more, you should be spending less or doing this and, and like pointing fingers at them. Like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That's right. Well, and that really brings up a whole big area, right? Is I think sadly, a lot of adults walk around with that fear of being judged that they're doing money wrong or bad or not good enough. And all of that is surrounded by shame oftentimes. And our profession has not done a great job navigating that. But I, I also know that our profession on the whole is moving more and more towards understanding that financial empathy and understanding actually is a far better agent of change than just advising or telling or scolding. Yeah, no, I would completely agree because I think, I mean, you being in the industry as well is it's not lost on me how much I'll use the word courage it takes for somebody to pick up the phone or schedule that first meeting because they're scared. Like there's, there's usually a lot of trepidation because they don't, even if they were referred from an existing client who knows me or my neighbor down the street that knows me, there's Mm -hmm. still that, that fear that they're going to get judged potentially, or they're going to be told, you know, doing everything wrong. And so again, it comes back to, I try to lead with empathy and understand like, Look, you got, you know, two kids yourself, or three kids, or four kids, whatever, and like you got a, a career. Your your spouse or husband or our partner's got a career. Yeah. You're doing the best you can, and so just let's take a step back and a deep breath and figure out where we go. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and that's definitely. I hope the message is getting out is that people can know that there are advisors like you and and therapists like me that are out there saying let's let's change the way we think about approaching this and if we get a little deeper on it is oftentimes um, we see and feel a lot of judgment from our parents around finances, either directly, or we watch mom or dad be critical of mom or dad about the money. And so we take, we internalize that as money is a dangerous, threatening topic. This is part of the money taboo that we talk so often about is why is money so taboo to talk about? Well, because the fear of evoking adverse or difficult emotions to deal with. No one wants, I mean, most people don't go around wanting to feel shame about their finances, but a lot of people feel it. Right. So if, if I come back to the, the, what, just list out those, those four attachment styles. Again, there was, there's, um, secure, secure anxious, a- avoidance. Avoided. Yeah. And disorganized. Disorganized. Yeah. Is it, is it possible to add to, figure out like where you're at and that the spectrum of those four, like, can you, can you, can somebody self-identify where they're at? And then if they do that, how do they necessarily course correct to get to that, you know, secure level? Yeah, that's right. So on my website, healthy love and money, I have an attachment style quiz that you can take and it it's, it's set up for me around my practice experience with different attachment styles and what I see with money patterns. So people can go to healthy love and money to, to take that. But and we'll put that are, link in our show notes too. But I would also encourage people to take uh, an attachment style quiz. That's actually set up by researchers and academics on attachment styles. And it does a really great job of assessing your relationship with your dad, with your mom. And I think another significant caregiver, and it'll show you on a chart. So if, if people listening, if you can imagine there's four boxes, right? Yep, you got a quadrant. Quadrant. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. You've got a quadrant. And so it gives you that visual representation that I know a lot of people like, right? And it'll show you where you're at, how deep into 
secure attachment, anxious, avoidant, disorganized you are. And that's called the attachmentproject.org. Um, and the attachmentproject.org is a, a little deeper assessment around what is your attachment style in general. Mine is more focused around money and what, what shows up there. Um, and then the good news is to work on your attachment system globally, there's kind of two pieces that I think about. There's one is just getting educated on what this is and doing your Google research. But the, the challenge is for most of us that are cognitively oriented, we want it to stop there. <laughs> if I just learn this information and I understand how it works, then it changes me. It, marginally, what actually changes you is it having new relational experiences. And so whether you're reading and then trying to practice the skills on your own, or getting into therapy with someone that understands attachment system and uh, attachment styles to help you have what's called corrective experiences. So, so in essence, if, if, if I put that back in my own layman's terms, it's yes, you can identify where you're at, but unless you choose to do the, you can understand all that, but unless right. you choose to do the work, whether read and then apply or, you know, have your own therapist that's, you know, getting you through this, then right. you won't get the bang for the buck, if you will. Yeah. And I like to make it, uh, what I've found is really helpful for a lot of people with psychological growth is draw the association with physical workout stuff, right? You can read about bench pressing until you're blue in the face. Yeah. Good example. Until you, until you go do bench presses, you're not going to get any better. Now, the question is, do you want to do bench presses with a physical trainer there? They can watch your form and make sure you're lifting right and you're doing the right cadence and like, oh, maybe you actually want to stack in some tricep depths along the way. So you don't become all peck or whatever. I'm, you know, that's not my expertise. So <laughs> mine, mine neither. <laughs> um, but I think that that's therapy allows for a dynamic relationship, meaning the therapist will show up with you no matter where you're at and work with you towards functioning more securely. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's where you're going to get the richest and most bang, but obviously that takes the most time, money and energy. And, honestly, is the most vulnerable, but it's usually in that vulnerability where the real growth happens. Right. So you can take an attachment. Um, I don't, you don't call it quiz, right? Yeah. Or, no. Yeah. Attachment okay. style quiz. Yeah. Okay. So attachment quiz on healthandmoney.com on your site. And then also the attachmentproject.org. And we'll have like, a, I've mentioned time and time, we'll have links to all those in, in our show notes. Yeah. Um, Going back to how I first found you on on the Kitsis podcast, which was it, this just completely resonated for me. Was this you gave a lot of great examples, and I'll probably link to that podcast, even though it's a financial planning oh, pro- yeah. podcast. It was it was great. You and Michael had just a, just a phenomenal conversation, and but you gave this example about this husband and wife scenario where there was spending issues. His wife was was spending more and which caused the husband to have to want to work more. I know I, I butchered that, but can you walk us through that example? Cause I think that it resonates, you know, for so many people and, and something that I see often. Yeah. So there's the way that I think about it is there's kind of this circular dynamic, right? Where the husband and I'm playing gender stereotypes. So please correct if you need the language, if this, if it's the inverse for you, but the husband goes off to work and the wife stays home with the kids, right? Let's just, I'm making it generic ish. And 
<clears throat> so the wife is then often responsible for spending in the family, right? Well, then the husband comes home and is critical of how much the wife spent. And then the wife feels resentful about that and just wants to become more private about how much she's spending. And then the husband goes off to work to make more money. And then he comes home and ultimately sees the credit card bill and realizes like, oh my gosh, why did you spend $500 at Costco today? She blows up and gets pissed off, shuts down and gets more angry and resentful. He sees the bills getting bigger. The family's growing. They don't, they can't talk about it because anytime that he brings it up, she feels criticized. Right. So that's, and then what happens at a deeper level oftentimes is there's emotional loneliness building into the relationship. So it goes from her spending money to support the family to money to just take care of herself more and more. And this is putting it all on the wife. Now, the other side is the guy is often unreflective about how much he's spending, what that means and represents to her. And so that builds more resentment. And so it just goes round and round and around. And so what we end up doing is starting for me as a therapist, is I start looking at where's the emotional bond for the two of them. How close do, are they? And this is where the attachment theory really sets a frame in mind. And most of my clients will have either an anxious or avoiding attachment pattern. And so what we're working towards is helping the couple understand the need for emotional and relational connection and feeling seen about what they're experiencing, what's going on with no judgment. How difficult is that? (laughs) Insanely difficult for some couples, moderately for some, and a few it's gone actually really smoothly once they've gotten it. Like, and this really kind of depends on how far into the resentment and contempt cycle they are. Can you bring, can, can couples, I guess, bring themselves back from the, from the cliff? Yeah. Yeah, they can, they can, they're usually not going to be able to do it on their own. Um, because if you get far enough into that contempt and resentment cycle, it's like, you know, blowing out your Achilles heel. That's the only thing you can focus on. You can't, and you don't want to feel empathy or compassion for your partner because you just feel hurt by them. And so that's where couples therapy really becomes very, very powerful. Um, and one couple success story, right. Is, um, he grew up lower income, watched his single mom really struggle with the finances, and he watched his siblings spend whatever they wanted when they would, she would take them for back to school shopping, right? She grew up in an affluent family. Grandma would take her shopping all the time. And uh, that was part of their bonding process. And money wasn't a, that big of a deal. Fast forward, you know, 25 years, they're married. They have kids. She knows, She relates to the world through shopping and experience. He relates to the world through saving as much money as possible to not create any distress. He becomes critical when she shops. Distance grows. For them, though, when I drew it back to their childhood and what that experience was like and what it actually meant for them, compassion showed up instead of contempt. And from compassion, they started to find a balance that worked for them. Where And she had been trying to get him to spend money, but he just wouldn't do it. And he hadn't connected that it was part of this fear of like not wanting to recreate the emotional distress that he saw his mom have. Now, he was making great money in a couple hundred thousand dollars plus a year. She was making solid hundred thousand dollars a year. So this family is making. They're well to. Yeah. They're making enough money. I mean. And so that's also part of the great irony is for a lot of the couples that I work with, they're in the mass affluent population. Their household income is six figures north. And 
So objectively, there's enough money, but psychologically, there's experiences that say either I don't pay attention to money and I just buy what I want when I want, or I, I'm so threatened and overwhelmed by the idea of spending money, I just got to try to keep it shut down. And those are the polarities. So what we're trying to do is help couples get to a balanced place of like, let's look at and understand our money and make decisions together, but let's not get so overwhelmed that we need to shut it down or just so carefree that we're not even worried about how much it costs and we lose sight of the fact that, you know, $500 may actually mean something. When, so actually I'm glad you gave that example because I was going to come back to how big a role does money play in our childhood as we get growing into adulthood? Because it's like th- th- that to me, it seems like that's a, that's a hot button topic. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, so kids are born with no financial template in their brain. They have no idea how money works when they come out of the womb. Right. Just think yeah. about it. They, they got no idea. And what's their primary source of influence in the first five years? Mom and dad. Absolutely. And here's the thing that when we understand brain development, their thinking, reflective brain, not very well developed, right? Can a five-year-old even do basic math? No. Mm -hmm. They're just, my my son's in kindergarten, he's six, and he's like, dad, what's eight plus eight? And I tell him 16, like, you know, it's obvious to me. And he's like, wait, no. And you know, what he's thinking is like eight, you put the eight by the eight and he's thinking that's 88. Some, 88. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. But what does he know? Does he know when dad's stressed? You better believe it. Does he know when dad's angry? You better know it. Does he know when dad's in a loving mood? A hundred percent. So kids know the emotional environment well before they know the objective numbers and can see the bigger picture. So if my wife and I are upset about something financially and they perceive the emotional energy and they hear the words, there's a pairing that's happening in their brain that they don't even know, right? And so that's how we build associations because money is all association in our brain. At the end of the day, money is symbolic. The only reason a dollar bill works is because you and I both agree it says one and it has the same value. And a five, right? It's the same piece of paper with a one, a five, a 20, or a hundred. Same piece of paper, slightly different design, same thing. But we learn because as humans, we're association makers. And so that's where we get those first frames of reference. Like a dollar will buy, you know, it's like you hear your grandparents, oh, I used to buy candy for a nickel. It's like, <laughs> I can't even imagine. And like, I bought a candy for a dollar. And my kid's like, I have to pay 250 for it. <laughs> well, first frame of reference. But what happens is, if the overall emotional energy around money is fear, anxiety, scarcity, shame, anger, these difficult psychological emotional states, then we develop a much more, and what I say in everyday terms, wonky relationship with money. If we grow up in an environment where money is seen as a source of safety, security, pleasure, opportunity, that there's some flexibility, that it's okay to make mistakes, then we start to develop a more secure relationship with money where we can be curious about it without feeling threatened or overwhelmed. Many of us that are in the financial planning profession get curious about money, not because money was such a great thing in our life, but because it was such a problem in our life. And we're trying to get some sense of mastery over it. And yet it's really the emotional mastery over money that we really need help with. It's not the intellectual. Once we cross a certain level of intellectual understanding, diminishing return. Mm 
right? So, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just chewing on that last one. I'm, I'm just thinking of myself personally, and and I've I've used that before where I've given examples of, you know, growing up and seeing you know family members getting taken advantage of from a a money perspective, and I, obviously that probably had some impact on me getting into this field because as most people know, I like you. I'm not, this wasn't my chosen field. Like I'm not a financial advisor, wealth planner by trade. Like my background Uh is in corporate accounting, tax, finance, and operations. You Uh know, I, I started investing when I was 13 years old and just never let that go because I was so interested in the markets, how they worked. I was very competitive growing up and loved Mm. sports. And, you know, I saw this, this game of the, and I know it's say game of the stock market, but yeah. you know, I, I saw that I, I related the two and I, and I, I saw uh-huh. that your, your score was always on the scoreboard for better or worse. Absolutely. Um, and that, that really um, spoke to me in some, some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a lot of folks that have that competitive um, sports background, they look at money, the money world is, gives you some objective sense of how am I doing in the world relative to everybody else? And there, I think there is some value in that, but I think it also hits limits in value at some point, right? Because yeah. at some point you start to make yourself crazy and you start to realize like, I'll never win. Right. There's always somebody richer. Yep. There's always somebody that has more. And so that's that endless competitive cycle where you never get to satisfaction or satiation. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, this is, to me, this is like a completely uh, fascinating topic because one of the things that a topic I've been chewing on and grappling with and talking to my families I work with, myself, is how do you define enough? Like I've had many conversations. I'm sure you know Brian Portnoy, um, yeah. the Geometry of Wealth author I've had on the podcast before. Uh, he and I have formed a great relationship. We talk about this as often as I can get him on the phone. Uh, because this is his specialty and it's it's figuring out what is enough. And even when you figure out what is enough, how do you stop the goalpost from moving? That's very difficult. Well, and that, you know, I think that it's, there's a dynamic tension there when we look at the human potential for psychological growth and meaning is endless, right? And so how do we grow constructively instead of destructively? How do we grow into more meaning than just pure um, money for the sake of more money it becomes very meaningless. But if we're pursuing more money for the a greater meaning, a greater good, how does that work? Right. And so, um, I, and I think for people like me that are highly sensitive and I hear this, like, well, you got to do- define when enough is enough. I'll un- unintentionally, lower my bar too low because I don't want to be seen as, because that's the other thing that people often manage against is I don't want to be seen as greedy or taking too much from other people. If you, I mean, if you think about money in a, in a fixed sum amount, which I don't think not logically money is not a fixed sum. There's it's, it can expand. Right. But there's a number of us that think there's only a fixed amount consciously or unconsciously. And so what we have to be aware of for ourselves psychologically is when we hear these enough conversations how are we actually doing objectively and financially? Are we actually on pay, pace to meet our needs? And there's a lot of people that are in that hundred to three hundred thousand dollar a year income bracket that are underaccumulated. So they need to be thinking about how do I make enough? But then there's some of us that cross that threshold of like where 
you have multiple millions of dollars, you have more money than you actually objectively need to keep your standard of living. And that's a different question around enough. Because a lot of times, like you, you get the people that are there and you, you can't turn that off. You can't, you can't turn off that going back to that competitiveness. It's, it's hard for, it actually becomes hard for people to spend the money that they've saved mm-hmm. because they, it, that, that change in mindset is really challenging to overcome. Well, and what we're, we're talking about from the, at the neurological and brain structure level is we're changing the neural pathways in our brain. Right. And so just like you can no say, easy well, feet, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I want my bicep to be bigger. Get bigger. I'm poking my bicep for those that are just listening. I'm looking. <laughs> I'm trying to change you, but you won't change. Come on. Right. Like, and so what we want to remember, and when people get frustrated and down on themselves, like, well, my mindset's not changing. It's just not changing. It's like, okay, well, remember that it takes multiple activations of the neural pathways and also a focus on where you want to go. And at the same time, also you need to be relational and talk about it with other people about where you're trying to go and what you're trying to accomplish because your brain starts to organize itself differently as you have relational conversation about intention. And so a big part of mindset shift is just understanding that this is a neurological change process and it's best done both self-reflectively and interpersonally, both. I can, I could keep you here for another hour. I swear, Ed. Uh, but I know we, we, we have a, a limited number of, of, of minutes here. Um, so let me, let me get to my last question, but I, I will, I will uh, throw it out there. I'm, I, we're probably, this is probably not going to be our last conversation together. I'm, Sounds I'm, great. I'm, I'm having sure a great that. time. So whenever you're welcome to have me back, I'll be happy to come. So as you could probably gather, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast and that I work with are, are families and parents. And so my, my closing question that I ask um, pretty much all my guests is, what is the best thing about being a parent? Because I know that you have a few. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, my four-year-old, almost five-year-old is probably is in a very endearing stage. And when things get a little tense in the house, he just looks at me and he's like, huggy? <laughs> and he just, you know, or if he's feeling a little distressed, huggy. And so it's just that sweet, innocent voice, right? That's captivates you and you just want to embrace him. And so that's my youngest right now. And that's great. Uh, my oldest that's coming to my mind and last night, he was, you know, he's sixth grade. So he's starting to lock his door and you know, I go to drop off laundry. And I'm, oh, come on, man. Like, what do you <laughs> You know, it was like, I tried to just hold myself. Okay. Like privacy, that's the thing for him. Like, I, okay. But, you know, I, I drop off the laundry. He's like, well, I'm working on something for, like, don't think I'm up to anything bad. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to trust you. But, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, he's like, okay, dad, come here. And he opens this door and his room is big and span tight as it's ever been. And I'm like, I hadn't said anything to him about it. I just, you know, said, you need to put your clothes away. That's, you know, and I was just like, wow, on his own initiative, he really got his room looking nice. And then he said, you know, as, as kids go through stages, but he's like, he started middle school this year. And he said, you know, at the beginning, of the year, he said, well, what are your goals for your grades? And he said, ah, if I can get 70 above. And I was like, okay, I love you, but let's have a conversation. <laughs> that was my goal. And I want you to shoot higher because I know you can do better. Now, mom on the other side, it was never good enough. So we're going to find that middle space. Let's shoot for 90, 90 above. You know, if you really struggle, that's okay. But 
90 and above. Okay, so he's digest. Well, part of this conversation last night, and he's like, I "Well, I need to study. I, I think I really actually want to go to Harvard. I want to have the best education possible." And I was like, "He's like, but I know it's like seventy something thousand dollars a year." And I said, "Well, that may be." I said, "You focus on really good grades and studies, and we'll see. What, you know, we'll figure out the money as we get closer." So just watching him grow into that. You know, the night before, he's like talking about wanting to be a head chef somewhere. So who knows where this actually will end up? And I think most parents recognize this, right? But that's delightful. And then, you know, my six-year-old, I'm really enjoying. He's in kindergarten and he brings home his art and it's, I'm drowning in art, but it's, you know, it's just nice to see the sweet innocence of a six-year-old drawing um, pictures of himself and what he's excited about Halloween. So yeah, parenting is, um, and honestly, I, I, I would be remiss to say the best part of parenting is doing it with my wife. I mean, that really like she's, she's an outstanding woman. She's so dedicated to our kids and uh, they're blessed beyond belief to have a mother like her. So, well, I, I, that's the thing is I love asking this question because of doing almost 90 episodes and two years into this uh, uh, podcast show. Now the answers are extremely different as you can imagine from person to person. But I will say, Ed, that is a, that I, I've never, no one's ever called out their spouse or wife or husband for that, which is amazing. So I, I'm hoping that uh, Mrs. Combs listens to this and, uh, and definitely yeah. hears that one. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, well, I'll slip you the 20 bucks later for the opportunity. No, I'm just kidding. That was totally, it was totally genuine, but yeah, I'll, I'll have her maybe listen to this podcast episode too. And be like, honey, just listen to the end. The best part's at the end. Uh, well, and I can't thank you enough for being on, on the emotional balance sheet podcast. And like I'm, I did mention, I'm like, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be more conversations yeah. to come. Absolutely. Paul, thanks for the opportunity. And thank you for the work you're doing to help your clients and help them keep things in perspective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.